From New York, this is Democracy Now! The arrest and booking of Donald Trump was a sign, a powerful sign, that the rule of law still holds, that accountability still is in the system, and that chickens will come home to roost. President Trump surrendered at the notorious Fulton County Jail Thursday night. He was booked on 13 felony charges for attempting to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia. Once inside the jail, Trump became the first former president to ever have his mugshot taken. We'll get the latest from Atlanta. Then, as Trump begins fundraising off his mugshot, we'll look at a growing movement pushing for mugshots to stop being released publicly. Plus, we go to Tennessee, where Republican lawmakers attempted to ban the public from bringing signs into the Capitol as protests continue over the refusal by Republican lawmakers to enact new gun control in the wake of the Covenant School shooting in Nashville. We'll speak to Democratic lawmaker Justin Jones, who was expelled earlier this year, then re-elected by voters for protesting gun violence at the Capitol. The rotunda has been shut down, for the most part, to the public um, under the orders of Speaker Cameron Sexton. Um, This is our special session that was supposed to be around gun violence, but what we see um, is a party more concerned with stifling and stopping uh, free speech. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Former President Donald Trump surrendered at Atlanta's notorious Fulton County Jail Thursday night, where he was arrested and booked on 13 felony charges over his attempts to overturn the 2020 elections in Georgia, which he lost. Once inside the jail, Trump was fingerprinted, had his mugshot taken. He was released after about 20 minutes later on a $200,000 bond. Trump briefly spoke to reporters at the airport after his release Thursday evening. We believe this is a very sad day for America. This should never happen. If you challenge an election, you should be able to challenge an election. I thought the election was a rigged election, a stolen election, and I should have every right to do that. Trump's former White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows, also surrendered Thursday and was released on a $100,000 bond. Also booked was Harrison Floyd III, the former leader of Black Voices for Trump. Floyd is the only one of Trump's 18 co-defendants to remain jailed ahead of trial. He faces separate charges in Maryland of assaulting an FBI officer who served him a grand jury subpoena in February. On Thursday, Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis asked to move the start of Trump's trial to October 23rd after one Trump co-defendant, Kenneth Cheesebro, demanded a speedy trial. He's the lawyer who proposed Trump use fake electors to try to overturn the election. After headlines, we'll go to Atlanta, Georgia, for the latest. Ukraine's government says it has dispatched amphibious troops to the western tip of the Crimean Peninsula, which has been occupied by Russia since 2014. It's the first direct attempt by Ukraine to reclaim territory in Crimea since Kyiv launched a bloody counteroffensive in June and came as Ukraine marked Independence Day, celebrating its split from the Soviet Union in 1991. Meanwhile, the Pentagon says it'll begin training Ukrainian Air Force pilots on F-16 fighter jets at an air base in Arizona after Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky won pledges from Denmark and the Netherlands to deliver dozens of U.S.-made warplanes. 
Russian President Vladimir Putin has made his first public comments about Wednesday's plane crash that reportedly killed Russian mercenary leader Yevgeny Prigozhin and other top commanders of the Wagner Group. Speaking from Moscow Thursday, Putin sent his condolences to the families of the victims and praised Wagner's actions in Ukraine and several African nations. Indeed, if there were, and the primary data indicate that there were employees of the Wagner private military company, I would want to note that these people made a significant contribution to our common cause of fighting the neo-Nazi regime in Ukraine. We remember this, we know it, and we will not forget it. Putin described Prigozhin as a talented man who made mistakes throughout his life. Putin did not mention the June 24th mutiny led by Prigozhin that saw heavily armed Wagner forces advance toward Moscow. Meanwhile, U.S. intelligence officials have told reporters the plane carrying Prigozhin crashed as a result of an assassination plot involving a bomb or some sort of sabotage. In Kyiv, President Zelensky said Ukraine had nothing to do with Prigozhin's death and suggested Putin was to blame. In Zimbabwe, results from Wednesday's nationwide elections have started to trickle in with parliamentary races, putting the ruling ZANU-PF party and its main challenger neck and neck. Hordes of armed police with water cannons have been deployed to the National Results Center. Results of the presidential election have not yet been announced. The race pits incumbent Emerson Mnangagwa against opposition leader Nelson Chamisa for the second time after Mnangagwa held on to power in 2018 in elections the opposition accused of being rigged. Chamisa is already accused his opponent of attempting to steal this election. Mnangagwa came to power in 2017 after leading a coup that ousted Robert Mugabe. Widespread delays during voting forced polls to stay open for a second day. Police on Thursday raided and arrested 41 local election monitors, prompting condemnation and accusations of interference by the ruling party. This is a voter in the capital, Harare. Ballot papers are supposed to be at uh, polling stations 48 hours before the election starts. And come the election day, there is no ballot papers. We have to wait here for 12 hours and there are no ballot papers. China has banned imports of seafood from Japan after officials began pumping treated radioactive water into the Pacific Ocean from the site of the wrecked Fukushima nuclear power plant. It's part of a plan to release more than a million metric tons of wastewater over the next four decades, drawing protests in Japan and across the region. Plant operator TEPCO, that's the Tokyo Electric Power Company, says it's filtered more than 60 radionuclides from the wastewater, leaving behind only tritium. TEPCO says levels of tritium being released are significantly lower than amounts released by normally operating nuclear power plants around the world, including those in China. Intense heat waves continue to grip much of the world, putting 2023 on track to become the hottest year on record. In Bolivia, the town of Viamontes reached 113 degrees Fahrenheit Thursday, matching the hottest winter temperature on record in the southern hemisphere. Extreme wintertime heat is also gripping southern Africa, where temperature records were broken in Botswana, Namibia and South Africa. And southern Europe is experiencing a historic late summer heat wave with hundreds of monthly records falling across France, Portugal and Spain. Climate scientists warn this week 80 percent of Italy's alpine glaciers risk disappearing by 2060. This is Italian environmentalist Vanda Bernardo.
We are here near the glacier and it is not cold. On the contrary, the zero temperature is rising again these days. There is another heat wave above 5,000 meters. The ice is retreating. The snow that covered it is almost gone. Here in the United States, a relentless and historic heat wave is continuing with all-time temperatures records tied or broken in cities, including Houston and New Orleans, Thursday. In Hawaii, a new lawsuit brought by Maui County officials blames Hawaii's largest electric utility for wildfires that killed at least 115 people earlier this month. 388 people remain unaccounted for. The lawsuit accuses the Hawaiian Electric Power Company of failing to respond to red flag warnings on the day of the fires and allowing live wires to come into contact with dry vegetation. A new study links fracked gas wells in western Pennsylvania with cases of cancer, asthma and birth problems. Researchers at the University of Pittsburgh found children who live closer to fracking sites were more likely to develop lymphoma. Meanwhile, residents of all ages had an increased chance of severe asthma, and pregnant people were more likely to give birth to babies with low birth weight. Western Pennsylvania is home to thousands of fracked gas wells. In Tennessee, the Republican-dominated legislature adjourned Thursday after a hectic special session this week on guns and public safety. This comes amidst mounting anger in the wake of the Covenant School shooting in Nashville earlier this year, which killed three children and three adults. Hundreds of protesters have rallied on Capitol grounds this week to demand lawmakers take action against gun violence. On Tuesday, a Republican leader ordered state troopers to remove people waiting to testify from a legislative hearing, provoking chaos and intense emotions. On Monday, Republicans imposed new penalties on lawmakers believed to be too disruptive and banning visitors from carrying signs. Members of the public circumvented the new rule by displaying words on their cell phones instead. A judge on Wednesday paused the ban on signs. Tennessee Democrat Justin Jones, a member of the Tennessee Three, was cut off at a House session after accusing the Republican House Speaker of racism over the new rules. Justin Jones, alongside Justin Pearson, was expelled earlier this year then re-elected by voters for protesting gun violence at the Capitol. We'll be joined by Tennessee State Representative Jones later in the broadcast. In labor news, some 150,000 auto workers could walk off the job next month as negotiations continue for new contracts with major automakers that include significant wage increases and benefits. The United Auto Workers is bargaining for pay increases of at least 40 percent over the next four years, which the union says was roughly equivalent to the recent salary hikes of CEOs at General Motors, Ford and Stellantis. Contracts are set to expire on September 14th. This could be the largest strike of U.S. auto industry workers in at least half a century. In Minnesota, Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Fry has vetoed a city ordinance that would have granted a minimum wage to Lyft and Uber drivers. Fry said after the veto, he reached a deal only with Uber for a commitment to pay drivers a city's minimum wage of $15 an hour. Lyft drivers are not covered under the mayor's agreement. Minneapolis City Council member Robin Wansley said in response, quote, this veto is an inexcusable betrayal of Minneapolis workers, unquote. Brazil's Supreme Court ruled homophobic slurs are a crime that can be punished with prison time. The ruling was welcomed by activists as the LGBTQIA community remains a frequent target of violent attacks. Rights groups said there were 228 murders of LGBTQIA people in Brazil last year, which was also the final year of the presidency of self-proclaimed proud homophobe 
Jair Bolsonaro. And FIFA, soccer's global governing body, has launched disciplinary proceedings against Spanish Soccer Federation President Luis Rubiales after he forcibly kissed Spanish player Jenny Hermosa during the award ceremony for the Women's World Cup. He also grabbed his crotch during the game as he celebrated in a spectator area he shared with Spain's 16-year-old princess Infanta Sofia. Rubiales is rejecting widespread calls to resign. The union representing Hermosa has demanded accountability as the assault has drawn further attention to misogyny and inequality in the soccer world and overshadowed Spain's historic victory. U.S. soccer champion Megan Rapino said, quote, what kind of upside-down world are we in? On the biggest stage where you should be celebrating, Jenny has to be physically assaulted by this guy? Unquote. Spain's acting prime minister, Pedro Sanchez, also addressed the issue. It is true that there has been some behavior, in this case, that of Mr. Rubiales, which shows that in our country there is still a long way to go in terms of equality and respect and the equalization of rights between women and men. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. When we come back, Donald Trump has surrendered at the notorious Fulton County Jail on Thursday night booked on 13 felony charges for attempting to overturn the 2020 election. We'll have more. Stay with us. the viceroys. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Donald Trump surrendered at the notorious Fulton County Jail Thursday night, booked on 13 felony charges for attempting to overturn the 2020 election. Once inside the jail, he was fingerprinted and had his mugshot taken. He was released after about 20 minutes on a $200,000 bond. Since March, the former president has been indicted four times and faces a total of 91 criminal charges. On Thursday, Trump became the first former president to have his mugshot taken. Soon after the photo was released, Trump began using the photo to raise money for his presidential campaign. He also posted the mugshot on the social media platform X. It was his first post on the site since he was banned by Twitter after the January 6th insurrection in 2021. Donald Trump briefly spoke to reporters at the airport Thursday after he was released. What has taken place here is a travesty of justice. We did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. And everybody knows it. I've never had such support 
And that goes with the other ones, too. What they're doing is election interference. They're trying to interfere with an election. There's never been anything like it in our country. Trump's former White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows, also surrendered Thursday and was released on a $100,000 bond. A hearing will be held on Monday regarding Meadows' request to move his trial to a federal court. Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis has subpoenaed Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and one of his former staffers to testify at a hearing over the request by Meadows. On Thursday, Willis also called to move the start of Trump's trial to October 23rd after one of Trump's other 18 co-defendants, Kenneth Cheesebro, demanded a speedy trial. He's the lawyer who proposed Trump use fake electors to try to overturn the election. A judge has set his trial to begin on that same day, October 23rd. We go now to Atlanta, where we're joined by two guests, Hugo Lowell's a reporter for The Guardian, who's closely covered Donald Trump's indictment in Georgia. And Carol Anderson is professor of African-American studies at Emory University, the author of many books, including One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. Her other books include The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America, and White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide. Professor Anderson, let's begin with you. Your reaction to the booking, this historic moment of the former president of the United States, the first time ever, and it happened uh, in your state, in Georgia. It felt, given the kinds of pressure that Trump put on Atlanta and put on Georgia and the targeting of Fulton County as somehow this bastion of corruption this felt like vindication. It felt like justice. It felt Nina Simone good. This is coming on the eve of the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington. In 1963, so many marched for voting rights, for civil rights. Talk about why you see this as a civil rights story. Oh, it, it was the attack on voting rights, because in Fulton County, well, in Georgia writ large, 90 percent of African-Americans who voted voted for Biden. Over almost 70 percent of Latinos who voted in Georgia voted for Biden and a little over 60 percent or so of Asian-Americans who voted voted for Biden. What you saw with Trump's team, their attempt to wipe out those votes, it was the attempt to say that their votes were illegitimate. The votes of minorities were illegitimate, like they weren't real Americans. It was the same kind of assault that we saw in, in, the, in the Jim Crow era, that those weren't real Americans and their votes didn't count. It was as if the, the march on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Bloody Sunday was irrelevant. And so it was seeing this kind of, of, of systemic and, and corrosive assault on the right to vote, the right to vote and to have your votes counted, and the way that African-Americans were denigrated in that assault as illegitimate, as the source of criminality, as the source of fraud, massive rampant voter fraud, where you could have a Rudy Giuliani talking about Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss as drug dealers. Um, passing out ballots as if they're passing out heroin and cocaine. 
that kind of assault on 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 black humanity was the same kind of assault that that led to the Voting Rights Act. Hugo Lowell, uh, you've been reporting on this for some time. We're speaking to you in Atlanta. If you can uh, share your response to what happened last night, as you wrote in your article earlier this week, Trump had his legal team negotiate his booking to take place during the primetime viewing hours for the cable news networks. Well, Trump basically wanted to surrender in the evening on Thursday because he knew that if he could turn things into a spectacle, if he could turn it into a circus, uh, he would be able to garner as much coverage as uh, he could. And in doing so, distract from not only the severity of the charges, because he's being hit with a racketeering charge in this case, but also from the indignity of having to go through the booking process. You know, him arriving at the jail in a motorcade, at the time that he wanted was as far as the special treatment that he got uh, went. Frankly, the moment he was in the jail, he was treated like any other criminal defendant. And I think that's really important because that was not how he has been treated in any of his other criminal cases. He had to be fingerprinted. He had his height and weight recorded, even though it, it appears that he, uh, he came up with that figure himself. And then he had his mugshot taken. And if you look at the mugshot, I think you see uh, two sides of Trump. You see a Trump who is trying to look defiant, and that was a, a face that he practiced uh, in the lead up to the booking. But you can also see a sense of fear in his eyes uh, and the fact that this is becoming really real. And we know from speaking to his aides and his advisors that in the days leading up to his surrender, uh, he really felt the enormity of what was coming down the line. And can you talk about his new attorney? You know, Trump has a history of firing lawyers uh, when criminal investigations turn into indictments. You know, we saw it in the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case when Jim Trustee, this former DOJ official, uh, ended up uh, getting let go when the indictment came down. And it appears to be no different in this case. Uh, Trump previously had retained Drew Findling uh, to be his lawyer for the entirety of the special purpose grand jury and the actual uh, criminal investigation and when the indictment came down, Trump uh, ultimately f uh, flipped him out for a new lawyer, Stephen Sato, uh, who in many ways is probably a better choice for Trump anyway. You know, Sato has this reputation of being a kind of a, a more of a trial attorney. He likes to beat his chest. He likes to go on TV. That was one thing that Drew uh, Feinling did not like to do. And I think it kind of uh, kind of underscores where Trump's mind is as he goes into trial. And can you talk about him turning to a bail bondsman uh, to meet the agreed-upon $200,000 bond? Yeah, by, by going to a bail, commercial bail bondsman here in Atlanta, uh, Trump gets out of having to pay the full 200000 He can basically put down 10 percent or 20000 and uh, satisfy his conditions of release here. Uh, and it's interesting that even though he went to a bail bondsman, he actually put up the 20000 as, as we are told by people close to the former president, um, himself through his own money, which is unusual because all of his other legal fees and all of the other criminal investigations are being paid for by the Save America PAC. He's been paying uh, basically all of his A's lawyers' uh, fees, his own lawyers' fees through the PAC, and to see him stand up this 20000 himself uh, was, a, was a notable departure, I think. And you wrote a piece on Wednesday, Hugo, headlined Trump's plan to skip debate shields him from legal exposure. Explain. 
Yeah, I think this kind of speaks to how Trump's 2024 presidential campaign is so intertwined with the legal team. You know, I think people like to think, oh, where does the legal team end and where does the campaign begin? But really, it's all wrapped up in the same operation. And that has its benefits, but it also has its drawbacks, because every time Trump has uh, given televised remarks, uh, whenever he's confronted with difficult legal questions, Trump seems to say a little bit too much and incriminate himself a little bit further. You know, the last two times that Trump was on uh, TV when he did the CNN town hall, he exacerbated his legal exposure with respect to the writer Eugene Carroll, who the day after losing um, uh, his civil case to, and he was uh, that that basically a, a jury said he was a uh, sexual uh, assault. Um, perpetrator, he went and doubled down in his claims. And then when he was on TV with Fox uh, in an interview, he basically conceded to holding on to classified documents even when he had been subpoenaed. And so I think there was a palpable fear among his lawyers and his aides that if he went and did the debate and he was cornered with a legal question, he might say something that would deepen his legal trouble. And so I think there was a sense of uh, uh, relief that ultimately he did not go to the debate and uh, cause himself further problems. And Hugo Lowell, talk about these other developments. Um, for example, uh, that Cheesebro asked for a speedy trial, which people are entitled to, and a date has been set for October 23rd, which has implications for all of the co-defendants, or as uh, they are called, co-conspirators. And also Mark Meadows wanting to take this to federal court and the hearing set for Monday, where now Brad Raffensperger, Georgia's secretary of state, has been subpoenaed to testify. No, you're starting to see what happens when you have 19 defendants uh, in, a, in a criminal case. Uh, and what is happening is basically you are getting different uh, conspirators with diverging interests uh, compared to Trump. You know, Trump's overarching legal strategy in all of these cases is the delay. He wants to delay past the presidential election because if he wins uh, and he can, you know, install himself as president, he can avoid the, the and so any sort of criminal liability that comes with a potential conviction because he will be in office. Uh, but that's not necessarily the interests of the other defendants. You know, Meadows, for instance, the chief, of, the former chief of staff, wants to remove his case to federal court. We expect Trump to want to do the same. But, you know, how is Meadows going to defend himself? Well, he might say that he was working at the behest of the president. That's not exactly great for Trump. As for Ken Chesbro, the the lawyer who came up with the, the or was implementing the fake elector scheme, you know, he moved for a speedy trial in Georgia, uh, which under local rules here means uh, trial will come, bef you know, in two grand jury terms. And that's what, as you said, has been set for October 23. Um, but that is not in Donald Trump's interests. Again, you know, Chesbro gambled a little bit here and thought maybe the district attorney wouldn't be ready to go to trial. But as we have reported in kind of the past several weeks, the delay from the end of the special grant purpose grand jury to the indictment appears to have been time where the district attorney was anticipating these pretrial motions and these pretrial rulings that might come and basically ensuring they would be ready to go to trial. And this might be the thing that turns around and um, bites them uh, where they didn't anticipate it. And can you talk about Harrison Floyd III, the former leader of Black Voices for Trump, the only one of Trump's 18 co-defendants who remains jailed? Yeah, this was uh, this was quite a turn yesterday. Harrison Floyd uh, self-surrendered himself at the jail in Atlanta without having negotiated a bond agreement. Uh, and so what happened was he was booked and processed like, everywhere, like everyone else. Uh, and then he remains incarcerated in the jail 
because he doesn't have negotiated conditions of release. And I think this was quite extraordinary because it appears that the district attorney's office had tried to tell him to come to their office and negotiate some sort of conditions of release, and he didn't do that, and he self-surrendered. And uh, ultimately, that is the predicament that he finds himself in, which is uh, unique among all of the 19 defendants. Let's go back to Donald Trump speaking last night. I really believe this is a very sad day for America. This should never happen. If you challenge an election, you should be able to challenge an election. I thought the election was a rigged election, a stolen election, and I should have every right to do that. So, Professor Anderson, he is clearly framing this as a free speech issue. You should be able to challenge an election. You should be able to speak freely. Your response? It wasn't that he just challenged an election via free speech. It was the criminal actions that he undertook in order to overturn the will of the voters. Um, and so the fake elector scheme, where you have people who pretend to be the real electors going into the state house um, and signing a form saying that they are the actual duly elected electors, and then sending that form to government officials, to the president of the Senate, to the head of the National Archives, and to a federal judge here in Georgia, signing it off saying that Georgia's electoral college votes will go to Donald Trump, as if Donald Trump was the one who won the vote here in Georgia. And he didn't. So that was fraud. And that was that was part of the scheme to overturn this election. So the the and the other component of this is he's saying that it was stolen. But there were three recounts here in Georgia. There was a hand recount of five million ballots. Biden won that hand recount and that recount was done November 19th. Then there was a, 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 hand, a, a machine recount. That machine recount was done and er, was completed in early December. And that was that showed that Biden had also won. But then what we have are a series of legislative hearings where Rudy Giuliani is spewing lie after lie after lie, basically saying up to 150,000 fraudulent votes were cast here in Georgia. And so, therefore, the state legislature needed to step in and overturn the results of a free and fair election. And then there was a hand recount, uh, not a hand recount, there was a recount of absentee ballots in Cobb County, which is part of Metro Atlanta, of these 15,000 ballots. Those 15,000 ballots show that there was nothing wrong with those absentee ballots. And so here you have basically three recounts showing no fraud, but they continue to spread that lie of fraud and then act upon that lie of fraud to try to, to overthrow a free and fair election. So this isn't about free speech. This is about trying to, to launch a coup, trying to overthrow democracy. This is an assault on American democracy. That's what the charge really is. Let me ask you about the charges against Trevian Kuti, uh, Harrison Floyd, and Stephen Cliffgard Lee, including solicitation of false statements, influencing witnesses as they tried to convince Ruby Freeman to pay for false confession. Trump mentioned Ruby Freeman 18 times during his call with Georgia Secretary of State Raffensperger. How did these charges shed light on what was taking place there? One is that they identified 
African-American women who were doing the work of democracy as basically being a threat to his presidency. Two, they lied. They just lied. Um, and, and as Brad Raffensperger says, this was a sliced and diced video that they, they portrayed as being um, the, the alpha and the mega of, of the smoking gun of proof that, that, that fraud had happened, that they had pulled out suitcases of ballots underneath a desk in State Farm Arena and then um, copied them 18,000 times run, running through to, to jack up Biden's victory, except the hand recount basically, and the machine recount denies that because if you have, if you have the ballots, then you don't have 18,000 additional votes. And the, 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 the targeting of Ruby Freeman by saying that, you know, she's a hustler, she dope dealer, hustler, 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 linking blackness with criminality. It was a way to, to, to then try to, 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 to solidify that charge of fraud. And by then getting, um, so when, when, when the minister goes to Ruby Freeman's house and he knocks on her door and she won't answer, and then, then he calls um, the black man to say, oh, you know, she's afraid of talking to me because I'm white. Again, playing the, playing the race card there. And then you have them, then, then blacks for Trump, then bringing in Kanye West publicist to, 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 to try to convince her to lie, to say that she did something that she didn't do, putting enormous pressure on this woman, putting enormous pressure on this black woman who is just doing the work of democracy to make her lie so that it would provide some level of credence to Donald Trump's lie. That is extortionist pressure. That is unacceptable. That's why he is charged. That's why they are charged. I'd like to bring someone else into this conversation. Um, uh, as Donald Trump begins using his mugshot to raise money for his presidential campaign, we're going to turn now to look at why some criminal justice advocates are urging police departments to stop releasing mugshots. We're joined now by Carrie Blakinger. She's an investigative journalist reporter at the L.A. Times. She previously reported on the criminal justice system for the Marshall Project. She's also author of the memoir, Corrections in Inc., which details her own experience serving time in prison upstate New York. Carrie, thanks so much for joining this conversation. Uh, this is the first time, uh, though he's been indicted four times, that President Trump uh, has had a mugshot taken. Uh, and, of course, it's out there right away. It was the first thing he tweeted out on X. Um, can you talk about the significance, the history of the mugshot, and now the movement not to have these photographs released? Yeah, sure. So I think that, you know, historically there's been concerns that the widespread distribution of mugshots undermines the presumption of innocence and um, their distribution also sort of exacerbates some of the existing racial inequities and biases that exist in the criminal justice system. Uh, obviously, some of those concerns don't necessarily apply to Trump, who is a privileged you know, and rich white man. Um, but I do think that as there's growing conversation about their use and distribution, um, it's good to remember that the more that we celebrate some of these broken features of the system, uh, the more ingrained they become. 
there's been a lot of conversation about whether mugshots should even be released at all. Um, I think in recent years, it's tended to be more focused on whether media should distribute them, which is a separate conversation from whether they should actually be released. And it's worth remembering that some of the first jurisdictions that Trump was charged in, the norm would have actually been not to release mugshots. The DOJ has not released mugshots um, ever, as far as I know. Um, And New York has stopped releasing them in recent years. And people often act as if not releasing mugshots or not allowing police to release mugshots would sort of bring the system to a halt. But there are jurisdictions that have been doing this for some time. And in many countries, that is entirely the norm. Can you talk about, in your own experience, and your your memoir is so powerful, I encourage everyone to read it, what mugshot meant? Yeah, I mean, I think that for me and for a lot of people, um, a mugshot is this sort of enduring image of you at your worst and most vulnerable, and it haunts you. It follows you around forever. Um, you know, for a lot of people, it's it's something that, you know, they have to pay money to have removed. Um, it's something that media websites have been able to monetize and make money on from mugshot galleries. Um, and it's really quite something to see the way in which uh, Trump sort of turned that on its head by, you know, we all know this is going to end up being used uh, for quite some time in fundraising emails. Um, so it, it's I think, if anything, the distribution of this mugshot and the way in which it's being used shows exactly how broken the system is in even having these be available for distribution in the first place. I wanted to bring Carol Anderson back into this conversation, Professor Anderson at Emory, uh, the use of mugshots and how it's been used, but also the reverse of that. For example, John Lewis, his mugshot became famous, a symbol of what he was willing to risk uh, to uh, fight for voting rights in this country. Right. And so we also have the mugshot of Martin Luther King in Montgomery. And so those and that mugshot was designed to try to show that the fight for civil rights was was criminal, that these were criminals. And so it was flipping the the issue of criminality, which was one of the key elements of the civil rights struggle, one of the key strategies of the civil rights struggle of flipping the strategy of flipping the, the sense of criminality of black criminality on its head and saying, no, what we're fighting for is American democracy. You get the inverse with Trump, though, um, because it's always so, so perverted is not the word, but it is always so Kafka-esque in that what you're seeing is not what, what it really is. In, in the struggle for civil rights, though, it was really about how do we fight for American democracy? How do we change the narrative of who black people are in this nation? And so, so much of what we saw with the the thing of the stolen election was a try trying to reify that that the stolen election was because black people voted because they're not legitimate. And so that there's that long strand of dealing with issues of black citizenship, black legality, and the mugshot was a key element in that. Another key element in that was the way that down in Georgia, in Quitman, Georgia, where Uh, Black people had used absentee ballots to be able to to have black people get on the the school board. Their mugshots 
were used because uh, Brian Kemp had charged them. He had led the GBI to charge them with voter fraud. There was no voter fraud. But their their pictures, their mugshots were used uh, on the front page of the newspaper as a symbol of black criminality, black theft of elections, black theft of democracy. And so the mugshots are, are you have have these various ways of being deployed to send a signal to, to craft a narrative or to reinforce a narrative. I wanted to go from mugshots to bail. Carrie Blakinger, you also recently wrote on social media, when I got arrested for drug possession in 2010, it was considered such a serious offense, I was not eligible for bail. While that someone accused of interfering with an election can get $200,000 bail, clearly very different cases, but says a lot about our criminal justice priorities. Talk about this. Uh, yeah, well— I think I kind of said everything on that one in the tweet. Um, but I related to bail. Uh, the One of the prior guests you had on had mentioned that after his arrest, uh, Trump was treated like any other defendant in terms of the booking process. And um, it, that sort of made me think about, I mean, if that were true, I think if he were treated like any other defendant, he would have been given a bail amount he couldn't afford and left to die in a filthy cell, because that is what happens in the Fulton County jails. They, they're particularly notorious jails. And I think that this relates to both the issues of bail that I you know, alluded to in that tweet and also just the general conditions of confinement that a lot of people face behind bars. I also wanted to ask you about that issue as you're talking about the notorious Fulton County jail um, uh, and the conditions in jails. Uh, we also saw this with Sam Bankman-Fried, who was just um, remanded into custody, can no longer be under house arrest until his trial, um, and was objecting to being put uh, in the jail in New York City. And the judge saying something like, yes, I admit it's not a five-star facility. <clears throat> but— all of a sudden, the interest in conditions in jails, when the far-right Republicans like Marjorie Taylor Greene, deeply concerned about the jail in D.C., where so many of the insurrectionists were put. I mean, I think progressives are very concerned and grateful that attention is being brought to these issues. But the, can you talk about the hypocrisy in this? Yeah, first of all, I think it's—, it's uh really frustrating to me when people make comments, you know, to the effect of that this is, you know, not a five-star hotel. Like, of, of, of course it's not. And I think that really, um, I, I think that sort of flip commentary really minimizes how bad the conditions are in many jails and prisons. Um, you know, I'm, I'm covering the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department and jails there. And, you know, I'm, I read on a regular basis about some extremely appalling conditions that just regular people end up in. And, you know, it doesn't often make the news or certainly doesn't make the news as, as much as it should. But, you know, people are routinely being booked in and, you know, brought to the inmate processing center there and, you know, left in cells that are covered in urine and feces and left to sleep on floors with no you know, no mattress and no blankets, and they're using trash bags for warmth. Um, and, you know, these are the conditions that, that many people face. And I, I think it's, I think it's great if this whole, uh, you know, situation ends up 
resulting in people on both sides of the aisle thinking more about bad jail and prison conditions and ways to actually solve that problem. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think that I, I'm not optimistic that this will have the sort of desired outcome in that respect, because I think that there's clearly a narrative that that this is about a system that's, you know, targeting certain people, that it's, you know, coming after Trump and his allies instead of making this narrative about how this actually shows uh, some of the broken parts of the system that the rest of the country experiences on a regular basis. Well, I want to thank you all for being with us. And let's not forget, it was LaShawn Thompson who died in September after a three-month stay in the Fulton County Jail. His family said he was eaten alive by bedbugs. Uh, Carrie Blakinger, we thank you so much for being with us, reporter at The Los Angeles Times, author of the incredible memoir, Corrections in Inc. Carol Anderson, professor of African-American studies at Emory University, read all of her books. And Hugo Lowell, reporter at The Guardian, both Professor Anderson and Hugo Lowell speaking to us from Atlanta. Coming up, we go to Tennessee to speak with Democratic state lawmaker Justin Jones. He was expelled earlier this year, then reelected by voters for protesting gun violence at the Capitol. This week, Republican lawmakers attempted to ban the public from bringing signs into the Capitol around a special hearing on gun violence. Stay with us. Do I let you down? I don't dream about all buildings. Doesn't tear you up when I give up what you gave me. Are you still gonna try to save me now? Am I still gonna make you proud? Are you still gonna say you love me anyhow? If I Make You Proud by the Nashville-based musician Madeline Kelson. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We end today's show in Tennessee, where the Republican-dominated legislature started a hectic special session this week on guns and public safety. This comes amidst mounting anger in the wake of the Covenant School mass shooting in Nashville in March, which killed three children and three adults. As hundreds of protesters rallied at the state capitol to demand lawmakers take action to stop gun violence, Republicans began the session Monday by imposing a ban on visitors from carrying signs and adding new penalties on lawmakers considered disruptive. This led to a dramatic confrontation Tuesday when a Republican lawmaker ordered state troopers to forcibly remove three gun control activists and mothers for holding signs at a House subcommittee hearing. Gun control advocate Shannon Watts shared this video of one of them being targeted and escorted out. In denying our First Amendment rights, what about the ongoing problem? What about our First Amendment rights? We 
have rights to hold a sign. I'm not listening. Are guns still allowed in here? Hold the sign. The third one back in the center needs to exit the room. The other one holding the sign needs to exit the room. Come on, ma'am. Is this what democracy looks like? No. Is this what democracy looks like? Y'all won't do this for people who bring guns to school. You have to drive me. There's a little lady back there holding a cell phone standing up and looking at the This is not what democracy looks like. Lawmakers then ordered the removal of all members of the public from the hearing. A judge issued a temporary restraining order Wednesday and enforcing the new ban on signs after the ACLU filed a lawsuit noting, quote, assembling and expressing grievances at the site of the state government is the most pristine and classic form of exercising First Amendment freedoms, unquote. This all comes after Republican Governor Bill Lee called lawmakers back into session to pass his proposal to keep guns away from people who are judged to pose a threat to themselves or others. He lost two friends in the Covenant School shooting. There were people at the hearings also who were parents of students at Covenant School. Meanwhile, Tennessee Democratic House member Justin Jones, one of the Tennessee Three, was cut off at a House session after accusing the Republican House Speaker of racism over the rules. Justin Jones, along with Justin Pearson, was expelled earlier this year then re-elected by voters for protesting gun violence at the Capitol. For more, we go to Nashville, where we're joined by State Representative Jones, a Democratic Tennessee State Representative for Nashville. It's great to have you back with us for the first time since you were sworn back into office, re-elected um, by Nashville uh, to represent uh, the city in the state legislature, Justin. Congratulations on that. But tell us what happened this week. It almost seemed like a replay of what led to you being expelled after the massacre. Yes, well, thank you so much, Amy. It is great to be back here as a fully reinstated member of the Tennessee House, but it's very unfortunate that the Republican House Speaker still um, is acting as an authoritarian. Um, it has been a very disturbing special session in which uh, we have our own mini-Trump, a man who violates constitutional rights, who um, tries to shut down dissent, who tried to overturn the election results in my district and Representative Pearson's district by expelling us and ignoring the voices of our constituents. Um, the Tennessee Capitol does not look like the people's house. It's been shut down. There are cords, um, cordon ropes put around the rotunda so people cannot protest and exercise their First Amendment right fully. The half of the gallery has shut, been shut down as only open to lobbyists. And so people can only sit on one side and have to get there um, hours early just to make it to sit for session. Um, and then are not allowed to properly go to even use the restroom. Um, as you saw, the speaker has instituted new rules where small paper signs are not allowed, but you can still bring a gun into committee. But you cannot bring a small paper sign that says stop gun violence until the judge granted that temporary restraining order that the speaker is now challenging. And um, in his uh, a continued attempt to silence lawmakers, if we're ruled out of order, uh, we can be silenced indefinitely on the House floor um, under the new House rules that were instituted by the Republican supermajority. Nashville's News Channel 5 looked at whether state troopers should have been used to forcibly remove protesters from the Tennessee Assembly. Reporter Phil Williams um, spoke with Democratic State Rep uh, Jason Powell and others. This is the clip. What it says 
is that we have arrived in a very scary and sad place in the state of Tennessee. In preparation for this special session, the Highway Patrol brought in an army of state troopers. Those troopers have been used to put the state capitol on a virtual lockdown, limiting the number of Tennesseans who are allowed inside to witness the debate with their own eyes. That despite a state law that lays out just two basic duties for the Highway Patrol. They patrol state highways and enforce all laws regulating traffic on and use of those highways, and they assist the Department of Revenue and County Clerks in the collection of all taxes and revenue going to the state. Clearly in the past few years we've seen the state troopers become a militarized force on behalf of members of the General Assembly. That uh, News Channel 5 report, can you respond to it to explain to a national audience what is going on in Tennessee in the State House, Justin Jones? Yes. Hundreds of state troopers have been deployed to the state capitol, um, not to um, protect us from the Proud Boys who were there on Monday, not to protect us from these fringe um, gun extremists who were outside the Capitol with AR-15s on Monday, but to stop nonviolent, peaceful protesters, predominantly mothers, who are saying we want our children to be safe in school. These were mothers dragged out of committee. These are mothers who are being told to leave the House gallery because the Speaker is so fragile and so afraid of the First Amendment um, and, and, and is doing everything in his power to make sure Tennesseans know that he... Um, feels that he is king. But really what it is, it's false power. They're so fragile by having these troopers uh, descending um, on mothers, on community members, on clergy, that it's showing for the world that Tennessee is a very dangerous um, signal as to what will happen when these authoritarians are in power. Um, I hope that people see what's happening in Tennessee because it can happen anywhere in this nation if we're not careful. And so these troopers are are being deployed. Um, some of them are even telling me that they don't want to do this, but they have to follow the direction of the speaker. And so they're, they're, they're being used as his private security force to silence citizens, to silence dissent, to silence democracy. And it's unacceptable. And we're spending thousands of dollars of taxpayer money to fund these troopers to be in the Capitol to act as this goon force to shut down um, protests, which is, which is ridiculous. Not even just protests, Amy, but people just sitting there in committee holding up a sign to have their voices heard. This is the most simple act of, 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 of resistance is being met with harsh repression. It is shameful, it is immoral, it is unjust, and it is unconstitutional, as the judge has told us, that has granted a temporary restraining order against the Speaker of the House. He's now appealing that, saying, well, it's his power to do what whatever he wants, basically, in the House. But Cameron needs to know, the Speaker of the House, Cameron Sexton, needs to know that the Tennessee Capitol is not his fraternity house, it's not a country club, it's not his palace, it is the people's house, and we're going to resist his unjust rules and his unjust governance in this state. You have had an ongoing uh, battle, I think it's fair to say, with the House Speaker, Cameron Sexton, from before uh, you were a state legislator. I mean, you were one of those who led the battle to remove the bust of Nathan Bedford Forrest, the Confederate general, the first grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. You were fighting Cameron Sexton, who voted against the removal of that bust in the state capitol. Can you talk about the significance of that to this day, where we're on the eve? Uh, August 28th, uh, the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington, Justin. Definitely. I think that history is, is looking at this moment um, because that march toward freedom and justice is continuing um, in a state like Tennessee. Um, you know, we're on the eve of that march on Washington, and we reside in a state where Dr. King was assassinated um, here 
fighting for racial and economic justice. And these are the things that my colleagues on the other side of the aisle, especially Speaker Sexton, are so afraid of, is that we come in the spirit of, of that tradition of, of civil disobedience, of civil rights, of good trouble, that is, is about showing to the world that we can be a better state and a better nation. And, and, and so when I look at Cameron Sexton, you know, he's, ha- he's lied on, on me on the radio. He's, he's had me arrested. He, I was banned from the Capitol before I was a lawmaker. But I want people like him to know that when we're fighting for common sense gun laws, we are fighting for their children, too. That what we're doing is for generations who are yet unborn. It's, it's, it's looking at our ancestors, the lineage of liberation of which we are part. But it's also looking at the generations to come after us to say that we are fighting for a Tennessee. We're fighting for a nation that is at peace with itself, that, it, that we can be voices of conscience in, in the midst of this chaos and confusion. And so Cameron Sexton um, is on the wrong side of history. Um, he represents the spirit of Bull Connor, the spirit of George Wallace. And we saw what happened to them, Amy. And I think that the same will be said of Cameron Sexton. The same will be said of Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, those who are authoritarians, who are abusers of their power, who, who, who are trying to maintain this white um, power structure, this plantation politics. It is collapsing. Their power is false. It's weak. And that's why we're seeing such repression, because as we say in the South, a dying mule kicks the hardest. And this mule of white supremacy and of exploitation of, of people um, is dying. And this new generation is rising up. Uh, today's my birthday, Amy. I'm turning 28. And as a young person, I'm so hopeful as to what this nation will be. I'm so hopeful for what America will be. And I say that on this show, that democracy now is democracy forward. And we're going to do it whatever we can with the time that we have to make sure that democracy sustains in this nation, multiracial democracy um, based on human rights and human dignity. Uh, State Representative Justin Jones, uh, repeat your age on your birthday today. I turned 28 today. Well, happy, happy birthday. Um, I I wanted to end by um, asking you if this state session was called by the Republican governor, Bill Lee, who lost dear friends in the Covenant School massacre, this was a conservative Christian school, If you feel that lines are actually breaking down, you've had people coming up to you from the school, um, thanking you for standing up against gun violence. Do you see hope for the future on your 28th birthday? I see so much hope as I'm sitting here right now. I'm thinking of Melissa, um, who is one of the covenant mothers who came up yesterday and pinned um, a ribbon that they had made with the school colors on me and said that I... Um, you know, I'm Republican, but you fought for our children. You fought for us. And that means the difference. We're seeing um, breakthroughs and fault lines breaking here. Um, their narratives and their facades of power are breaking. And it really is showing us that we can build a, a state that is multiracial, that is transcends this issue of left and right, but talks about right and wrong. These mothers, so many of them are Republicans, are saying these men like Cameron Sexton do not care about we our children. They don't seconds. deserve to be in power. And, and they are and they're and they're transforming the state. They're coming together and we're building a new coalition to transform Tennessee. And I believe it can be a model for the nation. Democratic state representative of Nashville, Justin Jones. Happy birthday and happy birthday to our digital fellow, Eric Halverson. I'm Amy Goodman. Thank